Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Gossip Girls, Luella Parsons, and Hedda Hopper. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. Oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons, is it? Must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly, and Hedda? Hollywood's best known, best loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. When last we left her, Luella was still on top, but in the late 30s, the context started to crumble around her. Marion Davies made her last film in 1937, which put Hearst out of the movie business, which made Luella less crucial to his overall bottom line. On the flip side, Hearst's publishing brand was flagging to the extent that being tied to him became almost a black mark on Luella. Hearst's own columnist, Westbrook Pegler, reported that Hearst's losses had dulled Parsons' star. Though much was changing in Hollywood, instead of adapting and turning focus to the new stars, 56-year-old Luella turned to nostalgia for the lost era. Marion wasn't the only star from Luella's golden era who was dropping out of the spotlight. By 1937, most of the bold-faced names that had filled her column since the 1920s had retired, died, or fallen out of favor. Luella didn't embrace the incoming generation, and in fact, frequently disparaged the turnover while waxing nostalgic about the good old days she gave the impression that she considered herself to be bigger than any of the up-and-coming personalities the studios expected her to use her column to help promote. And that led the industry to ask two questions. If Luella Parsons was not boosting the industry and its players, what was the point of Luella Parsons? And if Luella wasn't doing what the industry powers expected her to do, Could they find someone who would? In short, by late 1937, Hollywood had become so annoyed with Luella that there was much plotting as to how to diminish her power further. MGM actually did something about it. They installed Hedda Hopper in a plum syndicated gig, which resulted in her new Hollywood gossip column appearing in the LA Times the highest-profile competitor to Hearst's Examiner in the geographic center of the movie industry. In today's episode, we'll sum up the first 52 years of Hedda Hopper's life 
to explain how she stumbled into an opportunity to take on the most powerful member of the press that Hollywood had ever known. We'll also discuss the powerful institutions and their leaders that backed Hopper and encouraged both her right-wing, reactionary bullying and her very public rivalry with Luella. Join us, won't you? For part three of Gossip Girls, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Like Luella, Hedda had grown up in a small town, in her case, Altoona, Pennsylvania, believing she was destined for bigger and better things. Born Elda Furry, as soon as she was old enough, her father had put her to work subbing in for her frail mother as their household's sole domestic laborer, while also helping out at the family butcher shop. She idolized actress Ethel Barrymore, and even before she could realize her own ambitions to act, she adopted the pretense of the professionally costumed by making hats the centerpiece of her personal style. Her hats, sometimes fantastic, sometimes tragic, often seemed absurd 30 years later in Hollywood, so you can imagine how it went over in turn-of-the-century Middle America. She felt like a stunning tropical fish trapped in the dreary muck of a small pond. Elda ran away from home to become an actress, ultimately landing in New York in 1907 at the age of 22. Six years later, she married a co-star, DeWolf Hopper, a 55-year-old actor who took Elda as his fifth wife. Elda Hopper began working steadily in films made in the New York area in the late teens, and soon, she decided to change her name. As she would explain on the first page of her autobiography, The Whole Truth and Nothing But, A numerologist changed Elda to Hedda. My husband Wolfie was much older than my father and had been married four times before. The wives' names all sounded pretty much the same. Ella, Ida, Edna, and Nella. His memory wasn't as sharp as it had been, and he couldn't always remember that I was Elda. As time went on, this started to irk me. So, the numerologist came up with Hedda Hopper. I asked, how much? Ten dollars. That's exactly how it happened. It changed my whole life. It was the best bargain I ever made. Wolfie never forgot it, and I never regretted it. This passage is a great introduction to what would become Hedda Hopper's signature writing style. Which is to say, she wasn't a polished writer at all. She was a conversationalist who hooked readers with columns that were often dictated to an assistant and captured the sound of a dishy, slightly ditzy friend who always had a story to tell and always seemed to walk into a room with that story in media res. That her only husband was not protected from her acid tongue points to another signature. Hedda Hopper was the original queen of mean. At one point, actress Merle Oberon asked Hedda what compelled her to be so vicious. Bitchery, dear. Sheer bitchery. But it would be years before Hedda would find her metier in journalism. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hedda would be nearly 30 before she was really making a living as an actress, but she was able to preserve her natural beauty well enough that she got away with claiming to be five years younger. According to future screenwriter Charles Brackett, the writer of Nanochka and Sunset Boulevard, when Hedda was known as Elda, she had the best legs in all of New York theater. But those legs could only carry her so far. As Hedda herself would later joke, I was working under one handicap. 
no talent. Every day that she didn't have to run back to Altoona with her tail between her beautiful legs, she considered a success. Two years into her marriage, Hedda gave birth to her son, William. At her husband's request, Hedda gave up her acting career to be a full-time mom and homemaker. She'd come to regret this early retirement almost right away and went back to acting when it became clear that her husband wasn't committed to working enough to support his family on his own. Though she was politically extremely conservative in most every way, for her entire career, Hedda would promote the idea of women working, especially if it meant financial independence from men. Hedda was herself fully financially independent by the time her marriage ended in 1922, when she was 37. By then, she was a go-to casting choice for glamorous, bitchy matron characters. For a part in the 1918 film, Virtuous Wives, she had reportedly spent her entire $5,000 salary augmenting her wardrobe with hats and furs to make sure she'd stand out in the small part. This benefited Hedda in two ways. It made future producers turn to her first when they needed an actress of her type because they knew they'd save money on wardrobe. And it endeared her specifically to that film's producer, Louis B. Mayer, who would soon go on to run the biggest studio in Hollywood, MGM. In 1923, the newly divorced Hedda would sign a long-term contract with Mayer and move to Los Angeles, which was in the process of outgrowing and outshining every other regional filmmaking capital in the country. Over the next few years, Hedda would appear in movies directed by some of the most important filmmakers of the time, from Louis Milestone to John Stahl to King Vidor. In almost all of them, she played characters with names like Mrs. Stanley, Mrs. Hartley, Mrs. Collingswood Stratton. In a series of Technicolor shorts inspired by famous paintings, she played the Mona Lisa. She was never the star, but she worked like crazy. Luella Parsons, still in New York and watching Hedda's acting career from afar, nicknamed Hopper the Queen of the Quickies, based on her reputation for making the most of walk-on parts quickly filmed in one film after the next. After Hopper's divorce, she remained publicly single for the rest of her life. If she took a single lover, no one knew about it. Those who tried to get close to her, or who were able to witness her in private situations, observed her to be painfully lonely. But she worked hard to project herself as the bubbly, bitchy life of the party. By the late 1920s, her weekly Sunday afternoon parties were an institution, attended by everyone who was anyone, including Luella Parsons. Hedda Hopper became known for knowing everything about everyone in town. And this skill would sustain her for much longer than her legs, her hats, or any of her other assets, except, perhaps, for her conservative politics. The queen of the quickies only reigned for so long. Hedda may have racked up lots of walk-ons, but she never became a bona fide screen star. And in 1932, MGM allowed her contract to lapse. Just a few years before, Hedda had lost her life savings in the stock market crash, and she was now reduced to living in a basement apartment with her teenage son. She spent the next few years trying to find a new niche. She unsuccessfully ran for local office and sold real estate. Surely she had to trim her hat budget, but she still mingled with the West Coast elite. One night at Hearst Castle, Hedda regaled the dinner party with stories about the stars that she had picked up at other dinner parties. Another guest, Eleanor Patterson, the editor-in-chief of Hearst's Washington Herald, suggested that Hedda should write her stories down for publication. Hedda cracked, I can't even spell. But Patterson told her she could dictate her columns over the phone. 
And just like that, Hedda Hopper had a gossip column at the Washington Herald. Hedda's column ran for four months, beginning in the fall of 1935. Then they told her they'd keep her on if she took a pay cut, and Hedda refused. That was the end of her journalism career for the next two years. But she'd fail upward. In 1937, an executive from a Hearst competitor, the Esquire Features Syndicate, told an MGM publicist that they were trying to find their own version of Luella Parsons. The MGM publicist suggested Hedda Hopper, who he claimed had been working for MGM as an informant of sorts, saying, whenever we want to know what's going on with our stars, we call her. This makes the connection between Hedda, her new employer, and her old employer, MGM, all seem very casual. But there's reason to believe there was more going on behind the scenes. And Luella Parsons, who was not a conspiracy theorist, apparently did. Esquire signed a deal with Hedda Hopper to put her new column into 13 newspapers at launch, including the Los Angeles Times, the biggest possible platform from which to compete with Luella Parsons on Luella's home turf, in full view of the film industry. This was a huge get for a woman whose only newspaper experience had not been a success. When Hedda was handed a column at the Washington Herald through her cushy connections, it lasted only four months, and it seems clear that this was an audition, which she did not pass. And that was just one paper. Esquire was a syndicate, and they automatically gave Hedda 13 bylines. And they stuck with her until she found her footing. The job, Hedda would later say, was handed to her on a silver platter. Why would this happen unless there were greater forces in play? Luella would come to believe that Hedda hadn't just been suggested to the Esquire syndicate by a relatively minor MGM employee, but instead had been installed by Louis B. Mayer in collaboration with other studio chiefs in order to at least diminish Parsons' power and at best create a gossip columnist with a large reach whom the studios could more easily control. In one of Hedda's obituaries, an MGM publicist acknowledged that the studio had secretly backed Hedda as a columnist because they believed she could be, quote, strong enough to curb Luella's power. The MGM connection would seem to be all the more crucial, given that Mayer had once enjoyed having Luella under his thumb. What a coup it would be if he could enjoy that kind of control over one columnist, while also hurting the woman who, in switching her allegiance away from MGM when Hearst left the lot, had summarily betrayed him. Not that Louis B. Mayer deserves a ton of our sympathy, but unfortunately for him, it didn't work out that way. Once Hedda got the job, what made her successful? She wasn't a good writer. And again, she never actually wrote anything. She dictated every single one of her columns and books to typists. But she had something extremely valuable for any opinion columnist, which was that she didn't give a shit about being liked. Veteran publicist Henry Rogers described her as, quote, a dynamic, aggressive, humorless, essential bitch with a knife in each hand. She was truly an impossible woman. With this personality, Hedda didn't have a lot of friends, but she had the right friends in the right places. Her column appeared in the Los Angeles Times, which means she was instantly injected into the veins of the local ruling class. In the first episode of this series, we talked a little bit about the history of the Chandler family and how they used the Los Angeles Times to further their own interests 
and the interests of the Los Angeles business community. This all began with Harris and Otis in the late 19th century, but it was taken to the next level by Otis's son-in-law, Harry Chandler, whose role in the scheme to steal water from the Owens Valley to irrigate his own land in the San Fernando Valley was a partial inspiration for the incestuous monster played by John Huston in the movie Chinatown. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Now, where's the girl? I want the only daughter I've got left. You found out Evelyn was lost to me a long time ago. Who do you blame for that, her? I don't blame myself. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything. Harry Chandler personally stood to profit from the Owens Valley water grab. After receiving inside information, he had bought tons of land in the San Fernando Valley that was then useless, but would become an agricultural gold mine once irrigated. He used the pages of the Los Angeles Times to inundate voters with advocacy for the aqueduct and drought panic until they voted by a margin of 10 to 1 to steal the water meant for the Owens Valley. This is how behind-the-scenes power works. A combination of fear and fantasy propels the masses into making a choice that, unbeknownst to them, lines the pockets of the small minority of people who put that fear and fantasy in their heads to begin with. This is the story of the Los Angeles Times, and to some extent, it's the story of Hollywood. The Chandler family's legacy is thus marked by an aura of rot of mythic proportions. And it would be even if Harry hadn't also ensured that the Los Angeles Times would function as a machine to perpetuate his own wealth and power and that of his friends and cronies and to kneecap everyone else. The everyone else included a man who was not used to being on the short end of a power imbalance, William Randolph Hearst. In 1933, Hearst took out a bank loan guaranteed by Hearst Castellitz and Simeon. Unbeknownst to Hearst, Harry Chandler used his connections at the bank to take ownership of Hearst's mortgage. So when Hearst defaulted on the loan, his rival publisher would have been within his rights to foreclose on Hearst's home and monument to his own largesse. Harry Chandler left Hearst in anticipation as long as he could and then agreed to extend the loan until Hearst could pay it back in full. Chandler had done the whole thing just to enjoy having the upper hand over his competitor. The Times' influence steadily grew from World War II on. During the war, the Times gleefully stirred up racial dissent, supporting the internment of Japanese Americans and inspiring white servicemen to violently attack Latinx youth in what were called the Zoot Suit Riots. By 1947, the Times would leapfrog over all of its local competitors to become the most read daily paper in the Southland. And they set the tone for statewide politics. The Times was primarily responsible for launching and boosting the career of Richard Nixon. The Chandler family controlled the LA Times for about 100 years into the 1980s. And it was only during the last decades of that period that the Times was taken seriously nationally as a standard bearer for quality journalism. And yet, when Hedda's first column was circulated amongst the editorial staff at the Times for review, one unnamed editor, according to Hedda, felt her writing was beneath their standards and wrote the following memo. Badly written. No news value. Might be all right for a small-town weekly. Has nothing to offer a great metropolitan newspaper like the Times. Hedda claimed that while she could have called her very good personal friend Norman Chandler to grease her way at the Times, she didn't need to 
because another LA Times editor, L.D. Hodgkins, took a liking to her and became Hedda's champion. Hodgkins had first heard Hedda on the radio and thought to himself that if you could capture that voice and transcribe it to print, it could be something special. And that was literally how Hedda's column that appeared in the L.A. Times was produced. Not to dredge up recent history that feels ancient given all that's happened in the last five years, but reading about how Luella Parsons processed Hedda Hopper's cannonball into the high-profile Hollywood gossip pool, I was reminded of the last few months of the 2016 presidential election. We had Hillary Clinton, who had gotten into her position as a presidential nominee by working her ass off her entire life, swallowing a lot of shit that a man in her position would never have had to deal with, and yes, pissing some people off by engaging in behavior that, shall we say, did not always seem to be above board or fully transparent. But she had unquestionably paid her dues. And now she found herself competing with this crude rookie who circumvented all the rules, found new ways to offend every hour, and yet continually landed on his feet. And after a while, Clinton was unable to mask her disdain. She exuded the attitude of, I can't believe I have to dignify this guy with my attention and worry about losing to him, no less. And in fact, that attitude is one of the reasons why she did lose to him over and over again. News cycle by news cycle. And then finally, in the election. Everything I've just described could also apply to Luella Parsons at the end of the 1930s. And like Hillary Clinton, Luella would find herself losing news cycle after news cycle to an upstart she was embarrassed by, who she looked down her nose at, for good reasons. But once knocked off her game, Luella would struggle to regain her footing. As time went on, she held on to her power not by beating Hedda on Luella's terms, but by sinking down to Hedda's level. Luella's lapse in standing became evident when she missed a major scoop in her own backyard. In March 1939, Carol Lombard, a longtime Parsons friend who Luella had helped to get signed to her first studio contract, told her she wasn't planning on marrying her boyfriend, Clark Gable, anytime soon, but that Luella would be the first to know when the nuptials were imminent. According to a friend of Luella's who was with her that day, Parsons suspected that Carol Lombard was lying to her. The friend recalled that as soon as the movie star was out of earshot, the gossip columnist had mumbled, They're not going to tell me. I know it. Still, Luella was on deadline. She needed to file her column before departing for a press junket in San Francisco. So she wrote up Lombard's denial and then went off the grid. While she was away for the weekend, Lombard and Clark Gable eloped and gave the scoop to every paper simultaneously. Because Luella was out of town, she missed getting the story in her column. But Hedda Hopper hadn't missed it, so the news of one of the biggest celebrity weddings of the decade broke locally in the Los Angeles Times and was missing from the examiner. To a casual reader of both papers, Hedda looked like she had the scoop, and Luella? looked totally out of the loop. From that point on, the race was on between Luella and Hedda for each and every Hollywood story. Cruelest of all for Luella was the timing. Hedda was breezing in as the fresh face of the moment, just as Parsons was starting to be targeted for high-profile criticism. A takedown of Luella was published in the Saturday Evening Post in July 1939, which accused her of starting every day with a tumbler of whiskey. Luella, who the article described as plump and breathless and 20 minutes late mentally, 
most crucially seemed to be deluded into thinking all of her subjects loved her, when in fact, everybody hated her. The article was credited to a journalist named Thomas Wood, who had worked as one of Luella's leg men a couple of years earlier, making the expose not only bad press, but a betrayal. Wood had actually written the article in tandem with two high-profile scribes who insisted on anonymity. Nunnally Johnson, a journalist-turned-screenwriter and producer at 20th Century Fox, who would soon be nominated for an Oscar for The Grapes of Wrath, and Luella's rival columnist, Sidney Skolsky. The installation of Hedda was one thing. Everyone involved with that could feasibly claim that it was a free and open market, and that just because they were backing a neophyte and promoting her to the same level as the established veteran didn't mean they actually wanted to hurt Luella. But there was no hiding the intent of the Saturday Evening Post story. A former employee, a studio insider, and a direct competitor had joined forces to knock Luella down several pegs. Though nothing in the story was provably libelous, Luella sued anyway, hiring the notorious lawyer, Jerry Geisler. The lawsuit went nowhere, so Parsons turned her wrath to the one thing she could still control, her column. She effectively used it to delay or destroy the careers of both Wood and Doris Bowden, Nunnally Johnson's wife. Luella tried to shore up her celebrity by going on a personal appearance tour, accompanied by a number of up-and-coming actors, including Ronald Reagan and his soon-to-be wife, Jane Wyman. Over the course of two months in the fall of 1939, Luella and her pack of talent went from town to town performing a variety show and greeting large crowds. Luella's spirits were boosted by the response. She didn't seem to realize or wasn't willing to acknowledge that the thousands of people who had showed up at these personal appearances weren't there to see her. They were there to see movie stars who were not accessible to most people in their hometowns. Proximity to movie stars was, after all, the whole draw of any Hollywood gossip column. But at the dawning of the 1940s, Luella Parsons would lose sight of that. It's understandable that Luella would get confused because Hedda Hopper's instant success was that head spinning. Hopper defied what Luella had believed to be the rules of the game in many ways. But perhaps the biggest thing Hedda did, quote unquote, wrong, was that she infused her column with politics and not of the Hollywood variety. Luella Parsons had been more than content to cover Hollywood as a small town that it was. Hedda Hopper was thinking globally. She used her platform to gossip about everything and to apply the same lens on world leaders and social issues that she was expected to train on marriages and divorces in the movie colony. This had the effect of flattening out the divisions between hard and soft news. She wrote about what was going on at MGM and what was going on at the Pentagon as though they were of equal importance. To understand how Hedda Hopper was able to capture the imagination the way she did by making Hollywood gossip political, we should talk briefly about some changes in the way the media covered politics that happened in the years immediately before Hopper's arrival on the scene. At a time before internet or television existed, before radio became dominant and when national news magazines weren't really yet a thing, people could only get news from the newspapers available where they lived. Most newspapers did not have a Washington correspondent and ran coverage of the federal government from the wire services, if at all. The most prolific papers published in the morning and in the evening, but even those could only update a story twice a day, so there was somewhat less urgency to the whole enterprise. Until radio started to take hold in the 1920s, local papers could pick and choose which national news to run and could spin any news, really, any way they wanted to. 
This is one of the reasons why both Hearst and the Los Angeles Times were able to get away with extremely biased political reporting for so long. Meanwhile, there were major political figures who wished the news media would just leave them alone. Herbert Hoover, whose presidency from 1929 through 1933 was plagued by the Depression, saw the media as a problem to be avoided. He thought newspaper coverage of his handling of the nation's economic catastrophe made his problems worse, so he spoke to the press as little as possible. He had reporters submit their questions to him in writing and often took the prerogative to not answer them at all. This all changed with the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration. FDR was the first president of the 20th century to embrace mass media, to use it as a tool. As FDR's New Deal policies intended to move politics and government to the center of people's lives, there was suddenly much more to cover, and the Washington press beat exploded. Supply responded to demand. People wanted to read about how FDR was going to change their lives. And in some cases, they wanted columnists to reflect their own skepticism, frustration, or outrage with how rapidly and totally the world seemed to be in flux. In other words, Roosevelt's embrace of the media led the media to expand outwards exponentially. And it opened up new vertices, too. There were people who loved FDR and wanted to consume him and his government uncritically. And there were people who could only swallow news about what was going on with the president if it came with a side of vicious criticism. Enter Henry Robinson Luce and Time, Inc. Having grown up in China as the son of an American missionary, Luce, called Harry by those in the know, would build a multimedia corporation by owning multiple brands, most of which spoke to what at the time would have been considered niche interests, such as business or sports. His general interest magazines approached their subjects in revolutionary ways. With time, he pioneered the weekly news magazine, which made analysis of what was going on in the world, everything that was going on, not just the activities of politicians, gangsters, celebrities, and athletes, but also scientists, economists, artists, and other journalists, digestible by the average adult with an average education. When he bought Life in 1936 and rebranded it as the first weekly publication based on photojournalism, Luce was speaking to a consumer of information whose way of seeing had been changed by the movies. The Time Empire looked liberal next to the Chandlers and the LA Times, but it really wasn't. Through Time, Life, and Fortune magazines, Luce presented a vision of the news heavily colored by what he, as a right-wing Christian capitalist, fantasized it should look like. His fantasies, and their execution in his news magazines, were extremely potent. As historian David Halberstram wrote, quote, Luce's printed version of what he felt events should have been often obscured what they in fact had been. Because individual newspapers were not available nationally, Luce's magazines had a national voice that was unparalleled amongst print publications in the middle of the century. And through his use of cover stories, Luce was able to focus the nation's attention on a single top story every week. Time magazine debuted in 1923 as radio was taking hold nationally. And over the next decade, more Americans would diversify the sources from which they got news. This diversification would benefit magazine publishers like Luce more than it would benefit newspaper publishers like Hearst. Because radio could reach people in their homes or at work faster than a newspaper could, for many people, it rendered the newspaper as a repository of headlines redundant. If you were essentially getting your quick skim of the news from the radio, you didn't need to read a newspaper, but maybe you would want to pick up a news magazine, which could go into greater depth on the week's top stories with more reporting and analysis, or expose you to stories on the periphery of the nation's focus 
that hadn't made it to either radio or a tabloid news format. Stories about science, art, or international affairs. Where Hearst spoke to the working masses, Luce assumed, correctly, that more Americans were getting more education than ever before. Because of these and other changes in the newsreading populace, at some point, Hearst began to cede influence as Luce's influence grew. We can see something parallel happening with Luella Parsons, Hearst's loyal employee, and Hedda Hopper, who did not work for Luce, but felt the full weight of his support because Luce so hated Hearst. Over Hedda's first few years as a national columnist, Luce supported her in a number of noticeable ways. In the summer of 1941, Life magazine devoted several pages to a big spread about Hedda's new Beverly Hills home on Tropical Drive, a mansion of which Hedda would frequently crack, That's the house that fear built. In what was obviously a publicity stunt put together on Hedda's behalf, the pictorial showed stars like Cary Grant and Anna Mae Wong helping Hopper move in. When you think about the fact that Hopper was a journalist who had been nationally known for less than three years, this feature seems extraordinary. More extraordinary, the Loose publications also found ways to use coverage of Luella to promote Hedda. In the fall of 1941, Luella Parsons had made a triumphant return to her hometown of Dixon, Illinois, for an event called Luella Parsons Day. The columnist had taken the train there from Los Angeles, accompanied by a passel of stars, including Ronald Reagan, who hailed from the same county as Luella, and Bob Hope, who would play the master of ceremonies at an event presenting Dixon's favorite daughter to a crowd of tens of thousands. This weekend would represent the summit of Luella Parsons' career, or at least of her celebrity. For the past few years, her bad press had continued to mount. Luella thought Luella Parsons' day would be her chance to exhale. She thought she'd be able to go to her hometown, soak up the love, and get some good publicity out of it. Harry Luce thought otherwise. His Time magazine implied that Luella had hastily scheduled her big weekend back home to take the wind out of the sails of an American Legion event Hedda was hosting in Milwaukee at the same time, and that Parsons had forced stars to prove to which gossip biddy they were loyal by choosing which out-of-town event to attend. Even worse, Time ran side-by-side photos of Luella and Hedda. Above the caption, Rivalry ruined the revelry. In her picture, Hedda looks felt and elegantly groomed. The picture of Luella, surely approved by Luce, was monstrous in comparison, revealing multiple chins, a too tight dress, and blotchy skin. Luella would later write that seeing the picture made her, quote, feel like something out of a horror movie. A few months later, when Hedda signed a big new syndication contract, Time used the news to advance the narrative that Parsons had begun her demise, claiming that Hedda was, quote, much better liked than Lolly Parsons. Time declared that Hedda Hopper is the real Hollywood. Luce's publications continued to hype the competition between Parsons and Hopper for years. And in so doing, they directed much of their criticism at Luella's appearance, gleefully describing her as old and fat. Though Luella was less than a handful of years older than Hedda, she was not as well-preserved as the former actress, who had once been known for her great legs. But even if there was some truth to them, these criticisms were particularly cruel because they hit right at Luella's insecurities. In 1946, she would be diagnosed with a hernia, which one friend revealed was a consequence of Luella's habit of wearing extremely tight, archaic corsets. 
Luella may not have been movie star attractive in her 60s, but Hedda had her own aesthetic flaws. For one thing, her signature hats often went past the point of self-parody to land at pointlessly tacky. Hedda was also a sloppy journalist, and unapologetically so. She never fact-checked, never did the courtesy of asking a star for comment on a negative story about them, which would allow the star or their studio to beg Hedda to bury this juicy story in exchange for running some other exclusive. She didn't care about such niceties that Luella had been practicing for years. But more importantly, Hopper didn't seem to care about accuracy. The stars did what they could to fight back. After Hedda ran an erroneous story claiming Joseph Cotton had seduced teenage actress Deanna Durbin, Cotton went up to Hedda at a party and kicked her. How real was the rivalry between Hedda and Luella? According to Sheila Graham, it had all been masterminded by Dima Harshberger, Hopper's manager and publicist, who knew that if Hedda picked on Luella, Luella would respond emotionally. But like any Hollywood rivalry, this made for good copy, and that makes it hard to separate out what was organic and what was exaggerated by journalists looking for an angle. For instance, it would have been possible for Time to cover Luella Parsons' day without mentioning Hedda at all, or to cover Hedda's new contract without mentioning Luella. But they wouldn't have done that because Lewis had decided to go at his own rival, Hearst, by attacking Hearst's gossip columnist and embracing her competitor. Other press outlets that pit Luella versus Hedda probably found it easier to deal with two powerful women within the context of a catfight. All of this said, by the time Hedda's column was in full swing, these women, who were at one point friends, really did not like one another, and both went to great lengths to protect their own turf and position of power from the encroachment of the other. Each was known to value the loyalty of their sources, meaning that if a star who Parsons was used to getting tips from went and gave a story to Hopper or vice versa, that star would be threatened, blackmailed, and or smeared. It should be noted that this kind of conflict with another woman was unusual for both Hopper and Parsons. Hedda was not someone who had passionate feelings, positive or negative, about anyone. To her, nothing was personal. And Luella had always had female journalist friends. She had co-founded a group for them, and around this time she was close with Adela Rogers St. John, a fellow Hearst reporter to whom Luella was always paranoid she might lose her column, and Flora Bell Muir, a Hollywood columnist for the competing paper, The Daily News. She was used to keeping her frenemies close. But Luella may have been thinking too locally. Hedda was thinking globally, as she proved as early as 1939, when she attempted to turn the casting of Gone with the Wind into an international incident. Next week, we'll discuss that, as well as a few other events during World War II that allowed Hedda Hopper to build a brand around nationalism. Meanwhile, a film will come along that will force Luella Parsons to choose between the two forces that had long shaped her career. Her dedication to defending Hollywood as a free market system that should be protected from censorship, and her blind loyalty to William Randolph Hearst. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. 
Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Rachel Syme, who spoke to me about Sheila Graham. Rachel is a writer for The New Yorker, and she's writing a book for Knopf. Hedda Hopper is played by Cole Escola. Cole can be seen in Search Party, At Home with Amy Sedaris, and their self-produced special, Help, I'm Stuck. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.